Okay, thanks, Dan. Right. Um, well, I begin with um, Insulate uh, Britain. Um, I think all of us will have um, sympathy for their aims. On the other hand, I don't want to sound like an old um, establishment fart, uh, but um, in terms of their methods, it's clearly counterproductive. Um, you know, even the even the most um, how should you put it um, fanatical or narrow um, campaign group should have some idea of, uh, you know, mobilizing um, public opinion. Instead, what we have here is um, the brilliant effect of pitting motorists, ordinary people, not just lorry drivers, not just delivery drivers, but people going around the M25, people coming down uh, the M1, uh, people you know, trying to get into the port of uh, Dover, one can carry on. We've all seen the, the press stories and we have motorists versus protesters. And of course, the aim of most protesters is to point the finger at the elite, to point the finger of blame um, at governments. Um, instead of that, uh, this seems to have uh, backfired and uh, it doesn't uh, surprise me. So even when this was um, Extinction Rebellion, I mean, obviously Insulate Britain is a breakaway group, even when it was Extinction Rebellion, you know, people going on top of um, commuter trains in um, the East End of London and gluing themselves um, on, I had to say that I thought that those tactics were misdirected uh, because a lot of people, you know, in the gig economy, a lot of people in terms of collecting or delivering their children or visiting uh, relatives in hospital, ain't just inconvenienced uh, uh, by that uh, sort of protest, uh, but, uh, you know, genuinely uh, suffer uh, material deprivation uh, as a result of it. Because we're not talking about just one train, we're talking about rail, a rail line. We're not just talking about, you know, um, 10 minutes um, on the M25, uh, we're talking about massive uh, tailbacks and being trapped um, in those uh, traffic jams. Okay, so what's the aim of Insulate Britain? Perfectly reasonable, uh, and that is the government should uh, make uh, it a priority when it comes to um, greenhouse gases, uh, basically to ensure that the housing stock in Britain is radically overhauled. And they've put a date on it and it's uh, 2030. Now it has to be said uh, that Britain has, um, in terms of Europe, uh, perhaps the most um, uninsulated uh, housing stock um, on the continent. And obviously there are historic reasons for that, uh, that uh, Britain has a, relatively mild um, uh, climate. Uh, so, you know, being an island, uh, we tend to get um, less cold uh, winters and we also tend to get uh, less hot uh, summers. So if you take my house, 
before it was uh, done up uh, in midwinter. I can remember it. Uh, when there was a fierce wind, I had a thin carpet, and uh, so badly was the, the flat insulated that the carpet would rise up, um, you know, with the, the cold, cold wind. And uh, I can always remember snow blowing in through my closed windows. Now, thank God, uh, my house has uh, um, been um, upgraded and I don't suffer uh, in that that way. But there is too many houses uh, that, are, that clearly um, are um, extraordinarily badly um, um, insulated. And therefore, the, the call by Insulate Britain um, is perfectly sensible. And indeed, it would make a difference when it comes to um, energy use and simply uh, putting, um, you know, hot air uh, into an already uh, warming uh, climate. So I, I, I sort of think back um, and I think, um, you know, the suffragettes um, who were in the main a bourgeois-led uh, uh, movement and how even they, you know, would, uh, you know, very cleverly uh, pick their target. It was... Um, uh, often, you know, Lloyd George, who taught radical, uh, but couldn't bring himself to actually uh, demand equal uh, votes for men and uh, women. They would chase him around the country. We all know about the King's Horse. Uh, we all know about suffragettes going down Pall Mound, smashing the windows uh, of uh, uh, clubs. Now, obviously, if you take Extinction Rebellion, and you take its uh, breakaway, they've attempted to do protests in central London. They've attempted to do protests uh, in the city. And the police react with um, ferocity and with speed. And the problem, of course, that the government has got is that juries, in spite of the fury, no doubt that many motorists um, are expressing at the present time, they have a terrible habit of letting these people off. Um, so uh, we have uh, the uh, Home Secretary uh, threatening these people, um, not just with prosecution, uh, but injunctions, contempt of court, unlimited fines, and um, basically legislation uh, that um, would get round uh, the question of those damned uh, juries. In other words, an attack on democratic rights um, as established uh, in Britain um, over uh, many, many years. Okay. Um, still on the um, same subject, um, the government is due to produce its plan um, on um, you know, in terms of the run-up to COP26 uh, later uh, this month. And so we're told um, there's a conflict between, on the one side, the Chancellor, Winnie, Ronnie, uh, uh, Sunak and uh, the Prime Minister Johnson, and also the Business Secretary, um, Quantang. And, um, you know, we don't know what the result will be. What we do know, though, um, at the present time is that if you take um, the signatories uh, 
and I'm not quite sure the number, is it 195, is it 196, but the signatures uh, to the um, uh, Paris um, Accord, um, they haven't actually fulfilled uh, their pledges uh, that they made during and after uh, that particular uh, meeting. And indeed, what's particularly disturbing is not only have they not met their targets, met their pledges, but we now have uh, uh, more accurate um, climate models. And what that shows is that the previous models were inadequate, not because they overwarned, uh, but because they underwarned. And so uh, the prospect is of not only uh, the world hitting um, 1.5 degrees centigrade above uh, pre-industrial uh, temperatures sooner uh, than expected, uh, the prospect now uh, is actually hitting uh, 2 degrees centigrade and potentially going beyond that. And of course, as I've argued, and I'm far from alone, I'm now just copying mainstream uh, science or repeating mainstream uh, science, that th th we, we precisely start to enter into the territory of a tipping point where quantity gives way uh, to quality. And that doesn't just mean that temperatures go up, potentially in Britain, uh, actually, uh, when it comes to winter, uh, temperatures could actually uh, go the other way. But we need to understand that that's a local uh, question. It's not a, a global uh, question. Either way, we enter into extremely uh, um, um, challenging um, weather conditions. Uh, we enter not only conditions where flooding, fires, um, you know, high winds, uh, would be expected to become more frequent, um, the danger precisely is uh, that we have a climate shift from one system of climate um, into um, uh, another. And at the extreme end uh, of uh, the warnings that are being given, because you can get um, a, you know, a, um, how should we put it, a feedback loop uh, developed, that what we end up with is something uh, not uh, that's, um, how should you put it, just a few degrees above uh, pre-industrial uh, levels, but we actually go into a climate system uh, that more re resembles uh, the early Eocene, uh, which is, again, I think about 55 million uh, years ago, which has got considerably higher uh, temperatures. So certain parts of the world, um, the prediction is, uh, simply become uninhabitable uh, because the human body, um, you know, there's a maximum temperature uh, that we can withstand in terms of how much water we're actually capable uh, of drinking. It's also predicted under those circumstances, not only would deserts grow, but deserts in the seas, dead zones, uh, in the seas grow. Meanwhile, of course, under those circumstances, while it will take some considerable time, um, we have the ice caps uh, melting and therefore sea levels uh, rising and, um, you know, cities um, such as Jakarta, Shanghai, Alexandria, obviously Venice, 
um, but Houston, um, New Orleans, a whole list of cities uh, become uninhabit uninhabitable, indeed become um, inundated uh, with um, uh, water. So what that threatens uh, is civilization uh, breakdown. Um, I don't know, I don't think it threatens myself, uh, the end of um, human beings as a species. Uh, but if you look at human civilization, um, there's a very strong argument uh, that says that we would see a civilizational collapse and with all manner of horrendous uh, consequences. So basically our argument is under, under these circumstances, the idea of relying on the free market, the idea of relying on things like carbon trading, um, you know, new technology will do it like electric cars um, or, you know, reflector um, satellites that beam back sunlight uh, into outer space, seeding the sea, seeding uh, the upper atmosphere. Um, all of those um, solutions, I, I think, are bogus um, and potentially even worse uh, than the problem that they're meant to uh, solve. And um, our argument certainly is that what is required as a matter of urgency is planning. That planning could take the form of some sort of climate socialism. We mean by that uh, um, you know, planning by uh, the bourgeoisie in the same way um, that we saw in Germany uh, from 1916 onwards. And no one should have any illusions uh, that that would be benign, that that wouldn't involve corruption, that that wouldn't involve a crushing of um, democratic rights um, and popular uh, living standards. So from our angle, uh, you know, the slogan of uh, Frederick Engels, which was later taken up by Rosa Luxemburg, is completely apt uh, for our times, and that is barbarism or socialism, proletarian uh, socialism. Okay. Um, just um, a quick note on um, COP26. Um, it doesn't look hopeful um, at the present time in terms of uh, what governments are pledging and uh, what they are uh, doing. Um, it looks like uh, this uh, climate summit uh, will be a failure, even though uh, Prince Charles and Obama and Her Majesty, God bless her, uh, will be um, attending. OK, I want to shift to the killing of uh, David uh, Amos, uh, MP for Leon C um, in um, um, Essex. We now know who assassinated him. It was Ali Harbi Ali. And he apparently is um, the son of a Somali um, official um, who worked for the former president um, of, um, or is it Prime Minister, Prime Minister um, of um, Somalia. A um, couple of things to say um, on this uh, question. I certainly don't join in any celebrations at the death of uh, this man. On the other hand, nor 
uh, would I, um, you know, um, forget my differences with the Tories and uh, march there with uh, Boris Johnson to lay a wreath. And then in, in, in terms of uh, the politics that come after, say that we would decline to stand a candidate um, in the forthcoming uh, by-election as the Labour Party has and uh, the Liberal Democrats um, have. We would understand actually that whatever was going through uh, this guy's uh, head, Ali's uh, head, that we understand uh, that this wasn't uh, um, radicalization uh, that was born in Somalia. The guy is a British citizen. He was raised uh, uh, in uh, Britain and he was radicalized by British uh, conditions. And, you know, I'm trying to get into his head. So um, this is not uh, science. It's just an act of imagination. You know, that when he listens uh, to the BBC reporting, you know, world politics, uh, when he listens to, you know, what Britain's been doing um, in the Middle East, in Africa, uh, to his fellow Muslims, uh, the reporting is quite frankly obscene uh, because what we get is, you know, the death of one British soldier, the death of one American soldier. Um, uh, that commands, uh, you know, um, considerable uh, reporting. Meanwhile, the routine killing of hundreds of Afghanistanis, hundreds uh, of Iraqis, hundreds of Somalians, uh, hardly rates are mentioned because that is day-to-day -day reality uh, in those uh, uh, countries. So in that sense, we need to understand this assassination. Uh, I suspect somehow that uh, the guy had nothing against uh, Sir David as such, but simply was striking out uh, at the establishment, at, at an MP, and uh, trying to get uh, hold of uh, uh, a government minister um, is clearly extraordinarily difficult because they will be getting 24-hour-a-day uh, protection, uh, where ordinary MPs, at least at the moment, um, aren't. So if you want to take your revenge, uh, you do it against someone uh, down uh, the pyramid. Now, of course, from our angle, um, this isn't a positive move, quite the opposite. And, uh, you know, all the authorities will do is use this as uh, an opportunity, one, to stress the sort of bipartisan nature of politics, but two, also to introduce more uh, measures of uh, surveillance and oppression. Apparently, this guy was on uh, the list, what's it called, prevent, but hadn't yet reached uh, MI5. So their answer will be to recruit more MI5 um, operatives, um, fast track people, uh, in terms of the so-called prevent strategy. Just lastly, um, on all of that, I did notice the speaker of uh, the House of Commons um, talk about the, um, the House of Commons community. And um, I think that was a very, it wasn't, you know, um, it wasn't a piece of clever um, cleverness. I, I think that's a, a, a phrase uh, that reflects a reality um, about our politicians, both Labour, Tory, SNP, um, you name it. And I include the Labour left, uh, 
maybe with a few exceptions, they all fundamentally view themselves as politicians uh, who have to be uh, protected uh, from uh, the public. And in that sense, they've got something in common with professional footballers. You know, professional footballers uh, for 90 minutes a week will um, tackle, um, professionally foul um, um, other uh, players, um, you know, um, on the opposing team. Uh, but they are well aware um, that they are professional footballers. And next week they could be playing for that very team uh, that they've just been um, uh, fighting. Uh, use, you know, in sport, yes, but fighting against. And in, in the same way, although we don't have a, a big transfer market in Britain uh, between the parties, it's very rare uh, that someone up sticks and uh, shifts from one party uh, to another. Nevertheless, there is that sense uh, amongst professional politicians uh, that they uh, have a lot more in common with other professional politicians uh, than they do uh, the great uh, British uh, uh, public, that the British public are to all intents and purposes not fundamentally different as far as they are concerned to the way that professional footballers uh, view their fans in the stadium or for that matter um, um, over uh, the TV. Okay. Just a, a quick note on um, Northern Ireland and the EU. Uh, in my view, the whole question of Britain and the EU will just run and run and run. Uh, the referendum didn't settle it. Britain withdrawing uh, didn't settle it. It's never going uh, to be uh, settled. It will be fishing, uh, you know, one year. It will be Northern Ireland. It will be this, that um, or uh, the other. Uh, what the result will be of uh, Northern Ireland, I haven't got a clue. Um, suffice to say, when they agreed, when the British government signed this damned uh, agreement, um, my reaction was, well, yeah, OK, so they've got their um, no border on the island of Ireland. That's what they pledged that they had to achieve. On the other hand, you've got to have a border uh, between what is the EU single market, which Britain wanted out of, um, uh, and, um, and Britain. <laughs> There's no choice. So either you had to have a border on the island of Ireland, or you had to have a border, you know, down the middle of the North Sea. So we end up with something down the middle of the North Sea, and whoa, uh, uh, there you are. Um, all sorts of forms to fill in. Um, all sorts of regulations uh, that have to be abided uh, by. So what happens with the European court? I don't know. Um, either way, it, it is being noted, and I think, uh, you know, justifiably, uh, that this is something that the British government actually negotiated and signed up to, and we're told by Dominic Cummings that they had no intention of abiding uh, to. So it's a bit like America, isn't it? Uh, with the Iran uh, nuclear deal, that there you are, you negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. The other side compromises, compromises, compromises. Eventually, you come to an agreement, and then the next president simply says, "Well, uh, to hell, to hell with that. I'm not bound uh, uh, by that uh, agreement." So, um, in terms of um, uh, Britain. 
uh, we now have um, the news uh, that, you know, Boris Johnson will hold a summit with the, um, what do they call it? Visegrad, Visegrad uh, group. This is Poland, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary. They're the sort of awkward squad uh, in um, Eastern Europe, you know, the um, illiberal uh, democracies. And meanwhile, uh, we also have still um, simmering on uh, the conflict between Poland and its court saying that uh, EU law um, isn't um, supreme, isn't sovereign here. Um, and Brussels that says, well, that's what you signed up for. That's what being in the single market, uh, that's what's being in uh, the EU um, requires. Um, so what happens again, I don't know, but it is an illustration uh, for those that once believed that um, the EU uh, could challenge the United States for global hegemony, uh, that that was uh, delusional. Um, the EU, in terms of its uh, political and constitutional architecture, uh, prevents it uh, from doing that. And if you look at why the original architecture, my guess would be French fears of German domination. Um, uh, that would certainly uh, be a factor. But OK, so you stop Germany uh, dominating. And therefore, what's happened is that you actually stop the bloc as a whole uh, from acting in a decisive, unified uh, manner. And in that sense, the EU, as presently constituted, has more than a passing, passing resemblance to the Austro-Hungarian um, Empire uh, before 1918. Um, you know, you have conflict in that empire between Hungary and Austria, and Austria and Hungary and the um, states in um, uh, southern Europe, um, or it resembles um, pre-unification Germany, or for that matter, pre-Civil War, pre-Second Revolution, uh, the United States, where, you know, the nature of its constitution um, allowed a veto for the southern um, slave states who were locked in uh, to the British economy. So to all intents and purposes, uh, Britain uh, exercised a veto um, over the United States. And of course, it was conditions of civil war um, where the South succeeded uh, that allowed Lincoln um, to put the, the United States on a path towards industrialization and basically great power um, uh, status. So until the EU constitution is overthrown, uh, until something decisive happens, and maybe it just doesn't, uh, then there's no possibility of uh, the EU uh, representing uh, a challenge uh, to the United States. Quite the opposite, uh, in fact. It can barely keep itself uh, together. It can barely function um, as any sort of political uh, unit. After all, it hasn't even got an army um, or a police force. Okay. Uh, moving on, this is just a note. Um, the escape of uh, Uyghur uh, prisoners in Afghanistan. This has got nothing to do with the Taliban. Uh, this is to do with the conditions of uh, the old government disintegrating and, quite frankly, prisoners 
uh, from all sorts of different uh, um, political factions, either being released uh, by co-thinkers or just breaking out um, through force um, through their own organization. Um, either way, uh, this sort of shines a light on the nature of the Taliban regime and its relations or, or hoped for relations with China. Um, so we have the Taliban um, uh, government, for example, saying that we have um, solidarity, all oppressed people all the way around the world. Uh, we have solidarity uh, with all oppressed Muslim uh, people all around the world, except when it comes to China, uh, the Uyghurs are an internal uh, question, and we do not uh, interfere uh, in that. Um, and obviously, you know, if we look at the Taliban, the idea uh, that uh, they exercise uh, dictatorial powers throughout uh, the territory of Afghanistan is clearly uh, not true. Uh, geography mitigates, mitigates against that. Uh, the nature of the rival powers surrounding it mitigates against that, as does uh, the how should I put it, multinational uh, nature of uh, Afghanistan uh, as well. And just note um, the bombings of uh, Shia minority um, um, mosques in a whole number of different um, locations and who has claimed responsibility. So as well as the IS uh, in the uh, Kurdistan province claiming responsibility. I think we've had actually um, the, and I think it is, it's the um, um, East Turkestan Islamic movement has also claimed responsibility for some attacks. These are the, this is the Uyghur political uh, uh, movement. And this is in revenge uh, precisely um, against the Taliban government's remarks uh, about uh, the Muslim population um, in uh, China. So the idea uh, that the Taliban will bring peace uh, to Afghanistan, um, I, I have great skepticism about. Uh, the idea that Britain and the United States were going to bring um, uh, peace, I think, was um, uh, utterly uh, delusional. Uh, but uh, I, I think the same goes uh, with the Taliban um, as well. OK, um, where are we at now? Um, half past. Well, I've got one more item. I'll take a little bit of time, not a huge amount of time. Um, and this is about uh, the um, Communist Party of uh, Britain, the Morning Stars um, uh, Communist uh, Party. And... Um, what I was prompted by is someone showing me a, um, a copy. I think it's the latest copy of um, their, um, I say internal, it's not quite, but anyway, their internal-ish publication called Unity of where they're reporting uh, what's going on with the CPB, what, what the CPB is doing, what plans they have for the CPB's forthcoming uh, Congress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, you know, um, amongst the news items um, in this edition was the news that um, 
their Young Communist League has tripled in size. I, I have every reason to view that as a, a positive um, thing. Um, and also, I know from just talking uh, to comrades in the um, CPB uh, that the CPB itself um, has had some sort of, um, for it, substantial, um, 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 how should I put it, um, uh, influx of former uh, Labour Party members. Now, some of them will be returnees, uh, but a lot of them are people who were Corbynites of one description or another that are looking uh, for a political home. And I'm glad that they're looking um, at what is to the left of the Labour Party and to the left, quite frankly, of um, Corbyn. Uh, but then we come uh, to the problem. We have a problem for them as individuals, because what sort of an organisation is the CPB? Uh, but also, uh, what's the nature of the CPB regime? And so I found it um, interesting to read um, in this uh, copy of Unity, what do they call it? The protocol for all party members. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do, especially when it comes to social media, but not just social media. This is how you should behave as a CPB uh, member. Okay, so what do we get? No public attack on the program politics, decisions or activities of the CPB are allowed. Now, I always like um, when I look at the regimes of um, comrades on the left, I always like doing the Lenin test. Would Lenin be allowed to be a member of this organization if by some freak he was alive uh, today? Maybe you say this, this is unfair, but personally, I think it's completely uh, fair because we're dealing with here, not trying to reinvent Lenin. We're just looking at the principles uh, of internal organization and public behavior uh, that Lenin championed uh, as a revolutionary, uh, both under czarist oppression, uh, but also under the freedom uh, that came to Russian revolutionaries, both in the conditions of 1905, but more importantly, and wider, the conditions that came about as a result of the February Revolution and the collapse and overthrow of, um, of Tsarism. Okay, so under those circumstances, um, here's Lenin. Uh, did he attack the program politics decisions or activities of the party will define the party uh, the rsdlp no he didn't attack uh, the program um, of the rsdlp he modified it uh, that's certainly true but did he attack uh, uh, the policies well yes and uh, um, not just in terms of this or that meeting uh, but attack the policies of uh, the RSDLP decided by um, Congress um, and in a newspaper, and not just any newspaper, uh, but a factional uh, a newspaper. And Lenin's argument was, uh, well, when it comes to joint actions, there should be unity. Uh, but after 
those actions. I feel perfectly free. And indeed, I think it's a duty uh, to criticize, if they need to be criticized, the actions um, of uh, the party. And I apply that also to the decisions um, of the Congress, that if we think that uh, decisions were wrong, uh, we will say so, and we will say so openly. Well, that's Lenin. And we also then have attacking other members in public is unacceptable and grounds for an inquiry and possible disciplinary action. Well, let's apply the Lenin uh, test to this. And we won't apply it in terms of the RSDLP as it was uh, temporarily uh, dominated by the Mensheviks, I think, uh, after the 1906 uh, Congress. They, they had a majority uh, that was overthrown a year later. We'll apply it to the RSDLP bracket Bolsheviks. Um, um, did Lenin ever attack other members? Uh, well, yes, we have the very famous and very public a dispute uh, between Lenin and his former Lieutenant Bogdanov. And indeed we had Lenin campaigning uh, for the expulsion, not only of um, Bogdanov and um, what he called the um, left liquidators um, from the faction, from the Bolshevik faction, um, but the, the, the campaign for these people to be expelled um, from the party. Uh, itself, and he applied that to the the Bolshevik left, uh, the left liquidators, but also uh, to the Menshevik right. And what he was proposing is the unity uh, between the pro-party uh, Mensheviks and the pro-party Bolsheviks, all done in public. And um, yes, uh, if people disagreed, they they fought it out in public with all sorts of name calling. And we're not just talking here uh, about the word opportunist or a little bit wrong. We are talking about uh, the whole range uh, of uh, language. So did Lenin attack other members in public? Yes, he most certainly uh, did. And we also have, let's try the Lenin test on this one. Aliases and anonymity, um, um, that shouldn't be allowed. Um, this is seen as dishonest and even cowardly. Now, the CPB is prepared to look at particular um, people's employment, but uh, basically it's a no-no. Well, does Lenin pass that test? Well, no, his name wasn't, as you well know, uh, Lenin. <laughs> it was Ulanov. Uh, but let's, let's look at uh, the whole range uh, of other party leaders. Martov wasn't Martov, Trotsky wasn't Trotsky, Plekhanov wasn't Plekhanov, Zinoviev wasn't Zinoviev, Kamenev wasn't Kamenev, and I can just uh, uh, carry on. Was that unique uh, to Russia? Well, I think of our old uh, friend in the Socialist Alliance, Tony Cliff. Was Tony Cliff Tony Cliff? No. Was Ted Grant Ted Grant? No. Um, it, it, isn't, it isn't unique. Uh, uh, to Russia and conditions of czarism. Uh, this is something that revolutionaries uh, have done, I think, since you know, time uh, in, in uh, immemorial. Um, and indeed, in terms of my own, um, how should I put it, oh, big sigh uh, about the early CPGB, 
um, not only did they have their um, first Congress in public, you know, you could go to the visitors gallery, which I've got nothing uh, against myself. But what they did after they'd elected their first central committee, not only did they publish their names and they were real names, uh, they actually published on the back of the Congress report uh, their addresses which does strike me as uh, quite ludicrous, not least because six years later, in conditions of the general strike, uh, the state struck and arrested half the Central Committee um, before the, the strike had even begun uh, and ensured that the, um, um, what was it called at the time? Was it the weekly worker? It was the weekly worker, workers. It was the workers weekly. That's what it uh, didn't come out throughout the bloody general strike. Um, so in other words, the CPGB in its early years, while it stood by great revolutionary principles, uh, was sadly lacking when it came to security and combining, which was compulsory uh, under the conditions of joining the Third International, combining legal methods with illegal uh, methods. And the fact of the matter is, it's very interesting. You should read if you go to a secondhand bookshop, if you come across a book by a guy called Douglas Hyde, and it's called I Believe, snap it up. It's a great read. This is someone who became a Catholic and betrayed communism, uh, but he worked on the daily worker uh, in the run up to World War II and was in part responsible for setting up illegal, illegal uh, printing. Um, houses where the daily worker was going to be printed and would be illegally distributed. And was the daily worker banned? Yes, the daily worker was banned. The Communist Party wasn't um, in conditions of World War II, the period where Britain was at war and the Soviet Union had an alliance of, um, well, we can leave that one aside, an alliance with uh, Germany, a non-aggression pact uh, with Germany that just so happened to see the dismemberment um, of um, Poland, of course. Okay, let's try another Lenin test. Support for the possession of weapons in Britain or for armed struggle at home and abroad, that is not allowed. Why? Well, that not only, in my humble opinion, means that Lenin wouldn't be eligible uh, for membership of the CPB. To my knowledge, no member of the original CPGB would be eligible to be a member. And indeed, if we look at all the parties of the much maligned Second International, the Socialist International, including the Labour Party, right, in its 1900 manifesto, would also be excluded because these parties were committed, I think without exception, as far as I know, right, uh, to the idea of replacing the standing army uh, with the armed people, uh, the popular uh, militia. And certainly when it came to armed struggle, uh, we know uh, that uh, the parties of Comintern were obliged uh, to uphold that principle and indeed uh, to conduct work uh, in uh, the armies um, of the bourgeoisie. That was a, a requirement of membership. So not only does Lenin fall down here, um, the whole tradition of uh, Marxism uh, actually uh, falls down. 
And so we're told that uh, it's only in countries where the CPB has specifically approved of armed struggle um, can you uh, support it. Well, I'm sorry, comrades, you know, it, it's like, you know, uh, how should we put it, describing uh, the suffragettes. I've already uh, done that. It's like me describing this assassination um, of um, uh, the Tory MP uh, for Lee on Sea. I don't approve um, of it, but I try to understand it. And I would certainly, you know, say that blowback, uh, that the hypocrisy of the Western press is a pretty good explanation uh, for it. But I also understand why people take up arms. It might be ill-advised, but I understand it. And I would defend uh, their right to resist uh, and to fight back. And it's a bit like, well, you can't support a strike unless the CPB has approved of it. Well, why not? Um, so we even have this formulation. Um, comrades are expected to, to uh, familiarise themselves with the British government's list of prescribed organisations that are described as terrorists. So what does that bring up in my mind? Well, obviously, the obvious one that comes to my mind that comrades, you know, in the CPB and, our, you know, all our comrades on the left in Britain would be attracted to, I think wrongly, but I well understand why, is the YPG in Syria and the PKK uh, in Turkey. You know, the, the, this is, well, the PKK is definitely categorized by the British government uh, as a terrorist organization, and we know uh, that some comrades coming back from Syria um, have been arrested by the British government and charged with uh, supporting a terrorist organization, even though the YPG has been cooperating uh, with the Americans. But we can go down the list, can't we, of all sorts of organizations. I mean, does the CPB approve of the armed struggle of the PKK? Does it approve of the armed struggle of the YPG? I mean, I personally think, you know, that if, if I expressed solidarity with those comrades, and I would call them uh, comrades, you know, that's that a perfectly legitimate thing to do. The CPB might have its own view of what is the best tactics at the present time. It's entitled uh, to those views, but I would defend the right of the PKK to take up arms against the Ataturkist state and now the um, religious uh, state of, um, of Erdogan in um, um, Ankara. I have no hesitation uh, in, in, doing, in doing that. So, yeah, of course, you should familiarise yourself with the, the government's uh, list and one should be careful in terms of what language one uses. OK, fair enough. But we know that the CPB isn't talking uh, in that way. Now, I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's because uh, the general secretary, and this is purely speculative, and maybe it's unfair, but hey, I'm trying to do an explanation here. Maybe it's because the last time, well, the first time I came across Robert Griffiths, it's just worth describing. Here I was outside, I think, if I, my memory serves me right, a court in Luton of all places. And this guy who I'd never heard of before was on trial accused of um, wanting to uh, begin a bombing campaign. And this guy was called Robert Griffiths, and he was a leading member of the Welsh Republican Socialist Party. Uh, now, what that rings bells about 
is that this was a sort of um, um, an organization inspired by the Irish Republican Socialist Party, which was a split uh, from the official uh, IRA in the 70s. You had the provisionals, you had the officials, but you also had a split off uh, the officials um, who basically said, well, you don't really treat your Marxism seriously. Either way, um, they were committed to the armed struggle where the officials eventually downed arms. Okay, so there's Robert Griffiths. He's on trial. I'm not, I didn't say I swang anything, but I was there, and that's the first time I'd heard of uh, Robert Griffiths. And maybe that experience not only uh, propelled Robert to give up Welsh nationalism, left Welsh nationalism, that needs to be emphasised, left nationalism, uh, but maybe it put him on a trajectory uh, towards just common or garden reformism. Um, I certainly know that he'd been on a journey because um, we came across him next when he'd published um, something called the South Wales Communist Papers. This is in the conditions of the split in the official party. We were publishing the Leninist and sort of there's a whole number of uh, different groupings some are well known some are just not known except to aficionados uh, like myself and stan um, um here either way we actually rang him up because he was the main author because we liked a lot of what he was saying and we said is it okay that we reprint this in the leninist and he said yeah i don't give a shit i don't give a shit and so we reprinted it along with a huge bloody um, article by myself saying where we agreed uh, and where we didn't agree. Um, I think in that um, South Wales Communist Papers, uh, Robert might have criticised members of his own party, the CPGB, might have criticised the Euro Communists. I think he might have done it. When uh, it was published by the Leninist, it became public. Was he guilty? Of, you know, in terms of his own guidelines, yes. Um, was he right? Yes, he was right to publish openly. Uh, and we want to encourage people to make that the norm, uh, that we shouldn't keep the working class ignorant about our differences. Uh, the state knows all about them. Why shouldn't our members and why shouldn't uh, the wider working class educate itself um, um, through our differences and us fighting through? Our differences. I think the um, working class public in Russia did that in terms of the arguments between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. What was the nature of the revolution? Was it going to be a proletarian and peasant revolution uh, that could take steps in the direction of socialism? Or was, was it going to be a bourgeois revolution and in order to put the bourgeoisie in power, etc., etc., etc.? Was it going to be instant socialism? Uh, as was argued by the Socialist Revolutionary Party. All of those questions educated uh, the working class movement uh, in Russia because they were conducted openly and over an extended uh, period. Okay, and now we come uh, to this particular formulation. Um, our enemy is the capitalist class. Well, I agree, uh, and we shouldn't. Uh, give any credence to um, secret sinister cabals of Freemasons, Zionists and Illuminati running the world. May now, maybe this is a sort of literary uh, piece of hyperbole. I don't know. But it's a bit like when you look back at history and governments 
uh, a passing legislation, you know, banning this and banning that, especially when they do it repeatedly. Clearly, there's a problem. And clearly, there's a problem in the CPB, at least as perceived uh, by Robert Griffiths and the leadership faction um, 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 in the CPB. There are people who are openly criticizing. There are people who are raising differences with program, with actions, with policies. Uh, there are people that would appear to be saying that the world is run uh, by some cabal, some secret cabal. Otherwise, why the hell um, have it in these um, 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 instructions of what to do and what not to do? And now we come uh, to the last that I've noted down, uh, and that is this one. But it's perfectly right. It's perfectly legitimate uh, for historians or for that matter, uh, comrades in the CPB to investigate the history um, of the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. So it's perfectly legitimate. Um, was it Kenny Coyle who wrote the article, a three-part article in Communist Review, the uh, CPB's so-called theoretical uh, journal, saying that, well, basically he's following this guy in America, Arch uh, Getty, the so-called revisionist school, and they've gone to the archives in Moscow and lo and behold, I don't know what the exact figure is, but something it goes something along these lines. We can only find Stalin's signature on the death warrants. Kill this uh, lot of people um, for 163,000 people. So Stalin wasn't responsible for the death of 5 million, 6 million, 7 million, 10 million more as claimed by the likes of uh, Robert uh, Conquest, he only was responsible uh, for 163,000 deaths. That's terrible, they say, but let's not exaggerate. Uh, meanwhile, of course, Stalin collectivized, he industrialized, and uh, crucially, the Soviet Union was strong enough to beat off the Nazis and drive uh, the German war machine all the way back uh, to Berlin. Well, to me, that's um, apologetics. Uh, imagine if I turned around and uh, treated uh, slavery in the Americas in that way, and I investigated slavery in the Americas, and I said, well, I can only find, um, you know, death warrants in terms of the execution of slaves for running away or murdering their master or whatever slaves, uh, uh, you know, can be executed for. I've only found that for 10,000 cases. So what does slavery do? Well, it, it um, introduced the Christian religion to these poor people. It taught them English. It taught them to read and write. It integrated them into modern American society. So while we regret the 10,000 deaths, overall, it wasn't a bad thing, was it? Now, I don't think you can get away with that nowadays, really. Although that is still a current argument amongst the far right, the white supremacists um, in the United States. No, as a Marxist, what I would say is, well, first of all, how many died in terms of the slave trade in Africa itself? Uh, that there you are, you've got Portuguese traders, French traders, um, Arab traders, but crucially, as the, tr as the slave trade gets going, you've got the British going in there and sponsoring the slave capture 
uh, millions of people. How many people died uh, in those slave raids? Well, I've got no idea except to say the number must have been huge. You know, it must have been a very considerable number. We then know and we've got uh, clear documentary evidence of what they call, is it wastage or loss in terms of the, um, trans, uh, the Atlantic crossing? So how many died? Well, you can actually come up with a pretty accurate figure of that because it's recorded in the logbooks of captains, including as they forcibly kick uh, the entire cargo overboard uh, because they've got a disease. Right. So they are regularly dumping people. People are regularly dying. They're hanging themselves. They're killing themselves. They're killing their children. Right. So we know uh, that millions, literally millions died uh, in the crossing uh, from Africa. Uh, before they arrive in America. We also know, again, because it's all, note, you know, it's all noted down in the logbooks of the uh, slaveocracy, um, they're all doing their accounts as good, good bourgeois of the lossage, the loss of slaves within the first six months, within the first year, within the first two years. Something like 50% of all of those that they buy are dead. Now, anyone who said that there were only as I said, I'm just making the figure up, 10,000 victims of the slave trade. I would say that's an obscenity. And I would have to include in the death toll in the Soviet Union, I'd feel obliged to do it, uh, the death toll amongst peasants who starved uh, because of the manner of collectivization in the late 20s. I, I cannot you know, do it any other way. If you were stupid, you would say, well, it was their fault because they ate uh, their own cattle, they ate uh, their own chickens. But the nature of collectivization without tractors, without pre-planning, was inev inevitably you end up uh, with such an outcome. You end up with millions of peasants dying from hunger and that hunger spreading into the cities. So we all, well, we've presumably all seen the pictures of people in Kiev, you know, looking, uh, well, it, it, cases of cannibalism. Uh, were extremely uh, common. I would also include uh, in terms of um, deaths, uh, the fact that um, the secret police uh, arrested uh, according to quota. I would also include uh, uh, the fact that the Red Army uh, was purged. I would also include, uh, um, you know, uh, overwork. Um, um, in the prison colonies, in the gulag uh, system. To me, uh, a system has to be found guilty under those circumstances. And it was Frederick Engels uh, that coined the term. Remember his study of the English working class, uh, the condition of the working class in England, 1845, where he coined the term social murder. Now we need to bring that category to bear uh, when it comes to slavery and that category to bear when it comes to the Soviet Union. So I don't go with the CPB's apologetics uh, when it comes to the 30s, but here we are, here's the CPB lecturing its Stalinists. Adulation of Stalin and support for the substantial abuses of state power um, under Stalin is not compatible with our party's judgment of the matters um, and as reflected in the BRS, the BRS is the British Road to Socialism or Britain's Road to Socialism, 
as it's now called. Well, there's a lovely irony there, uh, comrades, and that is, of course, um, as anyone knows who knows anything about official communism in Britain, uh, that Stalin had a very big hand in the original drafting of the British Road to Socialism back in 1950. He had a meeting with the General Secretary of the CPGB, Harry Pollitt, and made a whole number of suggestions. And indeed, I've got a little pamphlet on my uh, bookshelf over there, written by the General Secretary who replaced Harry Pollitt in conditions of the Chinese-Soviet dispute before the Cultural Revolution, when the Chinese were denouncing Khrushchev and the Peaceful Road. John Gollan turned around and said, well, we, we support the Peaceful Road. That is supported. That was supported, indeed, partially written by Stalin himself. But clearly what we've got in the CPB uh, are those comrades that are, are um, idolizing or uh, giving adulation uh, to Stalin. And I'm reminded of a picture I came across of the Young Communist League uh, in Scotland with their banner, Young Communist League Scotland, with the four great teachers pictured on their banner. And their four great teachers weren't like you'd get in the Trotskyist tradition, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky. No, it's uh, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin. And I understand why uh, comrades uh, would have such a uh, figure. Why? Because it will annoy others on the left, or at least a lot of people on the left. But crucially, it would get up the nose of bourgeois uh, opinion. Um, that's certainly true. So a shock value, uh, I understand it. But when we look at the nature of the Soviet Union, um, I think that's a different question. Is Stalin a worthwhile guide? Uh, I would actually say uh, that if you want to uh, have results that didn't just result in the breaking of eggs to make the omelette, uh, but the deaths of, yes, potentially, in terms of social murder, potentially, yes, around about 10 million seems to be an accurate figure, and then end up in abject failure, then so be it. Because I don't think it was uh, Khrushchev and his denunciation secret speech which did it. It was the nature of the society that was created in the late 20s that inevitably ends up as something like Gorbachev and collapse, that it, it, its economic laws take it in that direction. Anyway, I'll just finish with this. Uh, that if we look at the CPB, the reason why it's worthwhile arguing with is it has its own specifics. That's absolutely true. But when it comes to its internal regime, sad to say that this is all too familiar uh, amongst so-called anti-Stalinists. If we look at the SWP, its internal regime is remarkably similar uh, to the one being championed by Robert Griffiths. If we look at the WRP, it's remarkably similar. If we look at SPEW, Socialist Party in England and Wales, if we look at Socialist Appeal, thou shalt not, not attack others in public in our own organization. Uh, thou shalt not disagree with Congress uh, decisions in public. Um, uh, as I've tried to argue, and um, you know, I think history <laughs> proves it, uh, this is completely alien uh, to the Bolshevik tradition. True, true. In conditions of civil war and recovering from civil war, they ban factions as a quote unquote temporary measure. And it's true uh, that the Communist International 
uh, again, um, under conditions where they think that the world revolution is just about to break out and comrades have to be organized, sorry, Robert, on military lines with arms in hand ready uh, for that action. Uh, yes, uh, they introduce in, a, in essence, a sort of military type organization. Uh, but the idea that this will get us uh, to victory, that this will represent a step forward for the working class, uh, I think is delusional. And sadly, and I say this um, not with any glee, sadly, what I would expect um, in the um, CPB stroke YCL is splits and expulsions. And um, instead of learning lessons, uh, the lesson is learned that these organizations stink or that democracy and um, speaking openly stinks. I, I think that there's something better. And the, the model I would recommend is the sort of organization that the Bolsheviks had, and for that matter, that they took uh, from German social democracy uh, before it, but applied it in conditions of uh, czarism that didn't stop them um, openly arguing uh, their differences out. So. Uh, in spite of the fact that they were, you know, um, organizing illegally, they were still free uh, when it came to the expression of their viewpoint. There's a lesson there. Thank you, Stone.